of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Lord Jesus, we thank you that there are many places in scripture where you show that you lived like us and that you understand us and that you sympathize with us. And so we see you sitting near a well and you are tired and you need food. And we see you on a boat after a day of ministry, working hard and and healing and teaching and talking and you are tired and you are asleep And so when we look at you, we see that you are like us as a man. And we're thankful for that. But then there are are times when we are looking in the scriptures and we're reading along and we see a passage like this where we see that you are not like us. And we are thankful for both. We're thankful that that we can see that you are the mediator between God and man. You understand what it's like to be limited in humanity. You understand what it's like to to deal with a, a human body and to depend upon the direction of your father. And then we see your deity and we see the two united, not in conflict, not one stronger than the other. You are both God and man and we are left awestruck by your goodness and your greatness and your power and your ability and your command and your control. And so, Lord, as as I come to this passage, I pray. First, I pray for your encouragement as we work through this passage, because who is sufficient to take a passage like this and to explain who you are? Everyone who tries in some degree will, will, will fail to fully explain all the goodness that's here. But Father, I thank you that, that we can read this passage. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we can, we can dig in here and we can find goodness and greatness that encourages us. There are many things that we think we need so many things, so many, so many circumstances and resources and societal supports, all kinds of things that we want to be different so that our lives will be good. But when you sought to serve humanity and to give us what we need, what you gave us was yourself. 
And so we pray that we would see you in all of your glory and your greatness and your goodness and that we would worship and be encouraged by who you are. We pray that you would be the application. You would be the encouragement this morning as we turn to your word, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, in, in the past couple of years, I realized that, that over the course of my life, I have grown to disrespect uh, movies to a greater degree. I don't mean like the analysis of movies like plot or characters or, you know, the fact that if you, if you read anything online about movies, they say all we're doing is recycling the same old plots over and over again. Oh, whatever, that's true. But here's, here's what I'm talking about. I, I realize I don't watch as much stuff on a screen anymore, right? I mean, who can afford, first of all, to go to the movie theater, right? But second of all, it's much cheaper to just get Netflix or something and watch it on a smaller screen, right? And at times, I find that when somebody sends me a video link, right, I'm not watching it on a, on a television or a monitor or on a big screen. I'm watching it on this tiny screen, right? You know, and so I'm, I, was, I actually watched this documentary uh, that somebody had, had, had sent me on recycling yesterday, just 22 minutes, short. We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school. Um, and so I'm, I'm watching this thing, and I'm like, you know, what's going on here? Looking at the world through this tiny lens, and I'm hitting the point where, like, that screen is just too small. I used to make fun of people who had these big phones. It's like, is that an iPad? What is that thing you've got there? And now I'm like, I get it. Give me a big phone, right? Some movies need to be seen on a, the big screen, right? You know, you're going you're gonna, to, you know, you just got to see certain things on the big screen, I went to, to, a number of years ago, my dad took me to New York City. No, it was Newark, New Jersey, to the Liberty Science Center, right? Is it Newark? Jersey City. Okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's, 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 it's that direction, right? Um, and, uh, and part of what they have there is an IMAX theater. Yes. And I, I like watching a movie on the screen, but there's something about watching a movie about a diver underwater, who's like in a shipwreck, surrounded by sharks and, and fish and dangers, and like the screen is so big, it's outside of your view. You know, like you can't look at the whole, the screen at the, at the Liberty Science Center stretches, it, the whole area you're sitting in is like this bubble and everything is screen, and it is overwhelming. The, the view that we, that you get when you see a movie that's that big, right? Here's, here's what happens, I find, a lot of times. Movies can, can drag you along emotionally, and they can challenge you. But a lot of times, when the credits roll, you're like, yeah, that was nice. But does it really change and transform? Does that vision that you just saw change things? Does it, does it challenge you to the core that you walk away from that experience that you just paid nowadays, like an entire tank of gas for, right? You know, you, I, have a, I have a small car. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, you, do, do you walk away saying that had tremendous impact on me? I've seen a bunch of movies recently, you know, over the past couple of years. Uh, one of them, and I'll, t- I'll talk about it just a little bit, was like, wow, that still resonates having seen it. My wife probably already knows what I'm talking about. Here, here's what I think. We, we have grown accustomed to 
looking at God in our culture many times, we, we look at him through many small screens, right? A, a lot of times what happens is something will, be, something will be going on out in culture and they'll say, and now let's bring on somebody to talk about where was God while all this was happening, you know? And they say something trite and lame and you're like, you don't, you don't represent my point of view. And they, they just, they give you this, this sad little vision of, of who God is or what his involvement was. We, we do this ourselves many times where we, we cram God down and, and our understanding of what we want from him into a give me this day my daily bread vision, right? Where we're going to the scriptures and we're saying, I need something to help me or get me through, right? And so we're just, we're looking for something just for today from God. And so we're, we're confining him. And I think, I think the devil likes this strategy, And he says often to us, just like he did in the book of Genesis, like, is God really good to you? Is he giving you what you need? You know, go and ask that question. What have you, the Janet Jackson question, right? If you were, if you you know her. What have you done for me lately, right? You know, and and the devil loves to encourage that. And so I think what what happens as as I turn the page in Colossians, right? And I see Colossians 1, 15 through 20, it suddenly the vision of Jesus that's there is so big and so powerful. It, if, if we let it hit us, if you, if you watch the vision roll out, you know, if you, if you soak in it or bask in it or consider all of what's there, when the, when the credits roll, you're like, that has impact. There is power there that will change and challenge my thinking. A number of years ago, uh, uh, a scholar, pastor by the name of J.B. Phillips, who wrote an awesome Bible translation to the Phillips translation, not really a translation, paraphrase, right? Not not for serious Bible study, but good if you're ever like, hey, I want to read something that's going to, going to, you know, maybe shake up my thinking about Bible passages. It's fun, the way that he writes. And he, he just kind of wrote it um, and, and uh, just, just to shake up our thinking about Scripture. But J.B. Phillips wrote a little book called Your God is Too Small. And it's interestingly a very small book. Um, and, and what he does is he takes visions of, of God and who God is, and he condenses them to about four or five pages each and then says, let me dismantle that. You view God as a machine to grant you your needs. And then he says, let me take that vision apart and challenge you. It's good stuff. I think that he is taking a cue from passages like this, where we tend to think, okay, my, my problem is that I am a sinner and I need my sin to be dealt with and then I can live my life without fear. And just go on about my days and, and, and I can live out my vision for life. And then we roll to Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20, and you see this enormous vision of who Jesus is. And that should shake us up and shape our thinking and leave us with, with a different perspective on things. So as we look through uh, verses 15 through 20, I want to first just hit 
the high points. There are two things that are, that are being said here about who Jesus is. Uh, it is quite possible that, that what Paul is, is writing here is either a hymn that the early church sang. There's some possibility of that. Or it is his, uh, his, some, some kind of uh, teaching phrase that he used. You know, some, some, uh, it's not a formula per se, but this is a, a precise doctrinal statement of who he believes that Jesus is. Uh, and so what he's doing here is he's taking something very, uh, it's very, very big, the identity of Jesus, and he's compacting it into this, uh, to this dense statement. And he makes two statements here two main points about who Jesus is and the vision that we ought to have of him. Verse 15 teaches that Jesus is the Lord of creation. We see that taught in verse 15 and then verse 16 and verse 17. Jesus is the Lord of creation. And then verse 18 through 20 teach that Jesus is the Lord of of the church. Now you might say, I know that. Well, good. We'll dig in and we'll look at it and we'll see if knowing this and understanding this challenges and changes our vision of him and what it is that that he calls us to, how we think and how we interact with both God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and the way that we engage the world around us and our own lives. Does, Does that vision challenge us? Jesus is the Lord of creation. It's interesting because I generally think of creation as the Father's job, right? Genesis 1 says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I think God, God the Father. God the Father is God, right? You know, when the Bible says, and God did this, my natural thinking is, oh, that's God the Father. And then in the New Testament, we, we see Jesus come along and, and we're told that he's God. It's like, oh, okay, God the Father, God the Son right? Jesus does the living perfectly and going to the cross, and God the Father does everything in the Old Testament, right? Colossians 1 says, no, that he is the agent of creation. I think that's challenging to me. I'm like, okay, reshape and and reorient my thinking here. Paul uses two curious phrases to, to describe who Jesus is, and I think this is good preaching because it's preaching that makes you listen, right? Occasionally, when I'm about to do a baptism, I like to, I like to say, you know what? Baptism is salvation. And people are like, <gasps> you know, because we know that baptism doesn't save you, right? We know that, that putting your faith and trust in Jesus saves you. But you know what happens when you say baptism saves you? Everybody starts listening. They're like, they're like what are you saying? And then you're like, okay, now I can explain what I want to say. Paul, Peter very clearly says, baptism now saves you. And he's, and he's talking about the fact that, that Jesus died for our sins, and he took our sins upon himself. And when we put our faith and trust in him, we are baptized into his death, right? That, that we, he identified with us in baptism, and we identify with him in baptism. Not water baptism, we, we become associated with one another, of which water baptism is just a symbol. But I can explain that in a room because now everybody's listening because I said something that, that was like triggering, you know? What, what Paul says here about Jesus, he says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And it's kind of like, what does that mean? What are you, what are you saying there, Paul? 
He's the image of the invisible God. That's curious, right? If you just pin it right there, if you just say, what does that mean? The image of the invisible God. How can you take a picture of something that's invisible, right? That reminds me of the fact that my wife often, while we're driving places, she often calls herself Wonder Woman. And she does drive like a superhero. We get places faster when she's driving than than when I do. But for some reason, people just pull out in front of her as if she is invisible. Wonder Woman flying around in her invisible jet, right? You know, it's just like, did you not see my car there? Where, where, Where am I? You know, like, what's going on here? When we come to the identity of Jesus, right, people say things like, well, who can really know what God is like? You know, we, we may have these desires to know God, but, but who's ever seen God? And where is he today? And what's going on? And, you know, all these different ideas and conceptions of who God is. Who can really know what's right? Paul says, no, it's very clear from what we've seen in history that there is a God. And that he is, his, his nature and his attitude and his behavior are not up for debate. The way that he works in the world is not up for discussion. It is clearly revealed in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all that God was doing in the Old Testament. And his behavior and actions and words are consistent with the behavior and character of God. You want to know what God is like? You want to know what God the Father is like? You want to know what the Holy Spirit is like? Look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. There is some uh, natural foolishness that I think a lot of us engage in at times. Some more than others. But many people, they, they view Jesus as their ally, right? He's their buddy. And then God the Father is distant and judgy. And wanting to like trip them up and throw lightning bolts at them and making plans for their destruction. If Jesus were not holding him back, you know, to which I say this. Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way, the truth and the life. Like, look at me. And then one of his disciples, I think it's Philip, says, show us the father and it'll be it'll be good enough for us. We'll believe in you. Right. We'll, we'll just we'll have we'll have absolutely perfect belief. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. You know what that means? That means if when you're looking at Jesus, you're like, man, I wish, I wish that God, the father would treat me like that. Or I wish that I felt that way about God, the father. Look, the problem is in, is in your, the the wiring of your thinking, not in the identity of the father, because he's like the son. You know why he's like the son? Because the son is like him, right? He's the image of the invisible God in the world. He is the Polaroid photo of God the Father. You want to know what God the Father is like? Look at every passage of the New Testament that that describes how Jesus would act in, in, in his flesh, how he interacted with different groups of people. That's the way the Father is, just like that. Because Jesus says, I just do what I see my father doing. I imitate his character. I take my cues from him. He's the image of the invisible God. Second, he's the firstborn of creation. And, and then people are like, wait a minute. I thought he was from eternity past. How can he be firstborn? In order to be born, you have to have not existed. You know, like how, how can he be firstborn? Okay. Right? We're listening. How, how, can, how can he be born? 
if he is the, the, uh, the very expression of who God is, if he is uh, the, the radiance of God's glory, as the book of Hebrews says. Uh, the way that the word firstborn works uh, many times uh, the firstborn in the family in, in the Jewish culture was the preeminent one. He was the one who got the majority of the inheritance. He was the one who was taking on the father's role. He was the one who was supposed to lead and guide and be the best at, at caring for the family. But it also means the preeminent one. It means the chief. If you look at Psalm 89:27, discussing uh, the identity of the Messiah, the, the writer says, speaking for God, I will make him the firstborn, right? In the way that, that, that the Bible works in the Old Testament, it, the very thing that's said next is often explaining the thing that was just said. So I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, Right? This Messiah will be the, the firstborn king. He's going to be the greatest king of all the kings on the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's the image of God expressed on earth. Right? He is, he is God's exact nature expressed to us but he is also the, the preeminent human being. He is the first of all. He's fully God and, and fully man. So Paul has our attention here. Jesus is, is Lord of creation, and he gives three reasons. One, he's Lord of creation because he's the creator. He's the creator. Okay, you're going to have to endure with me for just a minute. I was an art major in, in my first go at college, three and a half years, and then the college said, hey, we have an idea. Would you please leave? And I was like, okay, and I went to community college, and then I started getting A's because I wanted to get married and wanted to have a job, and like, I found myself and all that stuff, uh, but art college didn't go very well, but I did occasionally go to class, and I enjoyed it um, at times. Let me tell you what, here's the secret for going to college. If you're wondering and struggling, like go to class, read the book and do exactly what your professor says and you will get A's. That's, yeah, that's the recipe. Um, anyway, one of the things that, that, that I, I learned in art college is that, that art originally had a very clear meaning, right? Somebody would make a statue of a emperor and somebody would look at it and say, what is that? And they'd say, oh, that's a statue of the emperor. Right? And then what happened over time as society grew more chaotic, you know, and, and, and art got weird, people would say, what exactly am I looking at here? You know, and they'd look at this white canvas with a red dot in the lower right corner, and they would say, this is a, a presentation of the struggle of the working class, you know, uh, rising up against the oppression of, of the rich ruling class, and this represents the blood. And you're like, how did, would anybody understand that without the artist explaining it? What in the world is going on here? Sometimes the meaning is plain, right? But the artist can also explain the meaning, and hopefully when you look at it, then you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I get it, right? The creator intends the meaning, and he builds it into his creation. The creator decides to create, and he puts his intention into his creation. And if he does his work well, we look at it and we say, I get it. 
What I find so powerful about this is, is that more and more I'm noticing in stories and in art, what we're, what we're seeing in, in popular movies that are being released is an attempt to provide some supernatural meaning or explanation for what's going on in, in the world. We've got, we've got movies about aliens coming to Earth and what they teach us about ourselves. Right. We've got we've got movies about uh, cells and evolution. And there's all this attempt to to put some kind of spiritual meaning in it. And yet what the movie does not do is point to the God who created us. Right. It's interesting to me. I think that if we've learned anything in modern science, it's that chaos doesn't create information. Chaos creates chaos. It's only in movies that mutation creates something new and better. Anybody who knows anything about mutations knows that they destroy information and they make things worse. And that, if anything, that, that, the, that the future of the world, as we see it right now, means that we're degrading and declining and things are getting worse. And there's more illnesses and more diseases and more complications. We're not like, hooray, mutation survivability like that only happens in x-men comic books okay and yet we 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 want to find some meaning in the chaos interesting okay this is this was this was interesting to me stick with me there are one billion gigabytes in an exabyte okay exabytes are bigger and one thousand exabytes in a zeta byte all right. In, in a number of years ago, one computer estimated that there were 1.8 zettabytes in the world. That much data exists. Like unique bits of information exist. It's all on everybody's computers. It's all over the internet. Right. You can take all that data and you can encode it on DNA. And you know how much room it would take up? A teaspoon. You can write it on DNA. You know what that means? It means there's a massive amount of information hidden in your cells. Isn't that crazy? Right? We, we, we're, like, we're like, we're so superior and amazing. Like, we've, we, we write all these books. We've got this network of, of computers that are, we're all connected and the financial info and every bit of data is available. You can fit all that data in the thing that God uses to write who you are as a person. It's hidden inside of us. Isn't that amazing? You know what I find amazing? We've got this amazing network that, that communicates. Every time the wind blows, my internet doesn't work. <laughs> Why is that? How does the wind affect? Like, it's like, oh, there's a storm. Okay, can't connect to Wi-Fi, can't answer emails, can't do anything. The human genome has, has, has got so much information on it. Like, it would, it, back in the day of, of compact disks, it would take two of them to to compile all that information. And God's packed all that stuff into something much more efficient than what we've invented. He intends the meaning. And if we dig in and we look into the, what Darwin called the simple cell and we look at the DNA and we decompile it and look at all the data, what we ought to say is that thing is amazing. Who made that? And instead we're like, how did this emerge from the primordial chaos of nothing? <laughs> you know? You know what chaos looks like? My garage. <laughs> right? Not the Library of Congress. That's order. We don't arise from chaos. We arise from order. 
The artist has, has built the meaning into the creation and everything that we see in space and inside of ourselves evidences that there is tremendous meaning built up into us. You know what I also find amazing? When you listen to, to popular music or you look at movies, what are they trying to communicate to us over and over and over again? Like the effects of, of losing love, right? Or the joy of encountering it. Have you ever noticed like... 95% of music that's out there is about love, right? And how good it is. It's like, how many different ways can we say the exact same thing over and over and over again? And yet, human beings are obsessed with it. We write books about finding meaning in the world. And yet, if evolutionary theory is true, there is no meaning, and it's all random. Yet, why are we compelled to create meaning? It's because it's built into us. The creator put it into us. All things, it says, were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. Jesus was involved in that. And they were also created for him. The intent and the goal, the direction of all things is determined by and created for Jesus. That's not just being present in the creation. That's being active and engaged in it and in the intent of it. Jesus is the creator. He also is the priority. And we see that in uh, verse 17, that first part. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. I find it interesting that, uh, that, that, that the one who appears first in the Bible is often the most powerful one. Uh, John the Baptist gives testimony to this. He says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's important. We'll talk about that in a moment. But then he says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Jesus is Lord of creation and, command, and in command of all things because not only was he involved in the creation, but he existed before any of us did. And he has an intent and a plan for our lives and for the universe. He's also Lord of creation because he's the sustainer. Verse 17, the second part says that he's the agent of creation, the sustainer of it, and the one who determines the plan of creation. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. How, how, how ought this information to hit us? One, hopefully it expands your vision of who you see Jesus as. Not just a man who lived a perfect life and who hung on a cross, but the very God of creation who took on flesh and entered into the story to redeem his creatures and his creation. He knows everything about it and wants to be involved in restoring it. He is the Lord of Nature, which at present we see is fallen and chaotic, but the plan is to redeem it. He'll be king over a new world one day. But there's something a bit more, uh, it strikes a little bit closer to home for us, I think, when we think of Jesus as the Lord of creation or the Lord of nature. That means that he's the Lord of all people. Every single person. 
Jesus is the Lord of all people. He created everyone. He knew who would exist from the moment the creation began. And therefore, when we look out at the world, we should see people who Jesus created and Jesus loves. And people that need him and that know to some degree that they need him because they endlessly write songs about meaning and love and trying to discover the nature of the universe and all this stuff. And they're striving and can't come up with it. Why? Because they don't know that there's a Jesus who exists. And we ought to look out at the world and instead of judging them and saying there are two kinds of people, Christians and non-Christians, Christians are better, right? Nice. I'm glad I hadn't finished that. Yeah, that's good. You, you buzzed the first part. It's, it's, what we ought to do is say, those are people who need what we have, and our hearts ought to break for them. I don't know that. I, thank you. I don't know that I may be able to do this. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't even know the movie came out, but Nancy was like, we got to go see this movie. And so like on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, we went to go see one of those, you know, like only in theaters today movies. Uh, the documentary, uh, it's called Won't You Be My Neighbor. I'll tell you, it broke my heart. It did. I, I love the part where they were like, the, the one person was like, everybody looked at this guy and just said, there's got to be something wrong with him. And all these rumors circulated by Mr. Rogers that he was like a Marine or, you know, just all this stuff. Like people are like, there's got to be some explanation for why he was like this. And everybody in the movie just said, he was the kindest, nicest, most loving person they'd ever met. And I think, wow. I walked away from that thinking, we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and our neighbor as ourself. That's powerful. That doesn't necessarily mean that the way that he did it is the way that we ought to do it. But every single human being responds to and is craving love. And the Lord of our creation created us that way. So we're, we're called to, yes, to, to see sin and separation and, and difficulty and willfulness and rebellion as we look at, at sin. But we also should see sin as tragedy. And the message of Jesus is an antidote to that. And we go and we look out into the world and we say, we're called to love people and to point them to Jesus. It's powerful. Second thing that Paul says is that Jesus is the Lord of the church. He is Lord of creation, but he's also Lord of the church. He is the master of the church. The church does not operate, as many church constitutions say, as an independent body under democratic processes, right? Now, that may be the way that, that we ought to relate to one another, but the best form of government is a monarchy, right? Occupied by a benevolent, kind, absolute overlord, named Jesus, who, when he returns, right, he will say, this is the way that the world ought to be. But for now, we don't see the world submitted, as the book of Hebrews says, we don't see all things submitted to his feet. We see the church in relation to Jesus, and the church ought to say, my Lord and Savior commands me to behave this way, and so I will do it. 
He gives his life for us. I'm getting ahead of my material here, but I'm I'm, I'm preaching. Uh, He gives his life for us. He lays down his life for the sheep. And then he says, sheep, because I have done this, live this way. Go and, and, and enter the world and live the way that I command you. And we should say, thank you, I will. Thank you. He's the Lord of the church because of his resurrection. Paul says in verse 18 that he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, and we see it again, the firstborn from the dead, right? What's, what's interesting about this, right? Jesus goes to the cross with all of our sin upon himself, and he, he dies for the church, right? He, he dies to deal with sin, and then he's the first one raised, right? He's the first member of any church ever, right? Have you ever seen a second Baptist church Right? You've seen First Baptist Church. There are, there are Second Baptist churches in, in towns. And they were like, you know, everybody wants to be like first. Um, there's actually up in Delaware, there's a First Baptist Church of Delaware, which is the First Baptist Church in Delaware, which is kind of cool. Um, right? More superior title than the First Baptist Church of Salisbury or First Baptist Church is first member of the church ever. Right? First He's the first one in, Jesus. Why? First one to be raised from the dead. First one to receive life. First one to to do the work and to enter the church. He's qualified to be head of the church because he rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, we can be united to his life and be raised from our spiritual deadness as well. He wasn't spiritually dead. He became physically dead to put our sins to death. And when he rose again, we who are in these limited bodies and who are spiritually dead can be reunited with him. Beginning and firstborn should be read here to communicate that he's the first of many, but that he is superior. The resurrection of Jesus changes the world. It changes the course of history. It's the, the, the fulfillment of what God has been doing all through the Old Testament. It's, it's the crescendo, but it's the first note in everything he's doing for the rest of human history. And we're part of that. He's Lord of the church because of his resurrection, but also because of his deity. We see that in verse 19. It says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul, Paul states clearly here that the fullness of God's very being dwells in Jesus. He is uniquely the head of the church. The, the church is ruled not by some human being, which would be a mess, because all human beings have agendas, and they're not necessarily pure, right? This human being who rules the church also happens to be fully God and his motives are always pure and always right. He is Lord of the church because of his resurrection and because of his deity. He is Lord of the church because of his saving work. Verse 20 says that that God was pleased to put all of his fullness into Jesus and that through him he reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why is, why is there an end of the hostility between God and man? Why are they no longer at war? Because God reached out to men by becoming a human being, taking humanity upon himself, taking 
our sins upon himself. He, he took those sins upon himself and he died. He took the penalty and the punishment and he brokered a new covenant, a new arrangement between God and man. And God expresses graciousness to humanity because sin has been dealt with. The cross judges the sins of the world and says that they are truly sinful and that sin has a penalty and a price. And yet at the same time, it demonstrates the mercy of God towards humanity and as he extends kindness to us. Colossians 1.13 says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was the one who took this upon himself. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit conceived of the plan to save humanity, but Jesus was the one who said, I will do it. And that is why he is qualified to be Lord of the church. His resurrection, his deity, and his saving work. Now, let me put these two together and just share one thing, because as the credits roll, this is what hits me, okay? And this is what makes me say, this needs to change the way that I think. This challenges me. Jesus is, is Lord of nature, and that means that he's Lord of, of the storms and the difficulty, right? And I don't just mean, like, metaphorical storms. I mean real storms. God knows what he's doing in the middle of hurricane season, and we, we look out at the world and say, where's God? God is in control and the creation is in chaos because of human sin. And that's a symbol of it. Is he, is he attacking or destroying cities because of their sinfulness? No, he's not eliminating people because they're worse and we're safe and so we're better. That's not the way it works. But what will communicate to us that all is not right in the world if it's not forests on fire and humans unable to stop it? How, how, how will we look out at the world and say all is not right? I mean, especially us, who every time we open the fridge, there's plenty of food, right? We're like, we're like there's food there, and we can find food. If there's no food in the fridge, we can go, and there are people who will say, here's food. We, 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 don't, we, don't, uh, we overcome crisis through our resources in this culture. We need to see things that are bigger than us and out of control in order to realize that we need God. He's Lord of nature. That means he's Lord of our, our, our profession and our friends and our families and the world around us. But as Lord of the church, he's also the focus of our worship. He ought to be the focus of what we're sharing about church. Our church loves Jesus and worships him, and you will know him better if you come there. Not you'll love this or love that, or we've got this or we've got that. It's that you come here and you will find Jesus. And so he ought to be the focus of our preaching. But he ought to be the focus of our security and our assurance and our faithfulness. Let me explain what, what I mean. And this is what I'm going to close on and I'm going to pray. I do fear internally at times I think of, I think, what will my wife do? What will my children do? When someone says, Mr. Meyer, you have cancer. But don't worry, we're going to administer this treatment to you. Okay. You're a doctor, right? I'm a doctor. Okay. And you're suggesting this treatment. Yeah. What's your doctorate in? Early English literature. I'm like, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. I'm going to run away from you and go find someone else, first of all, to like read the results of this report, and second of all, to prescribe. Like, are you qualified to even talk about what you're talking about, right? Th think about this. 
It is so important that Jesus is Lord of nature. Think about what he's promising to us. He's the Lord of creation. He's promising to raise us from the dead. Does he have the power to do that? Yes, he does. Is he going to put us back together properly? Yes. How do we know he can do that? Well, he created everything. He created you in your present state, and he can restore you to a better state. He is qualified because he knows. He knows the struggles of the world deeper than any of us ever will. He made the world, and he saw it. And he knows every struggle. The Bible says he was tempted in all matters like us, except he was without sin. He knows. And then he is Lord of the church. And so he calls to us and he says, this is what you need most. You need to put your faith and trust in me and trust me with your future. What are your credentials, Jesus? Well, he's Lord of all creation. That's not just a song lyric, right? It's his actual identity, Lord of all creation. Can you, can, can you be trusted with my soul and with the details of my life and with everything? He's Lord of the church, yes. Those two drawn together cover our every single need in life. It's not just that he was a good man who taught moral things about how we should live. He created us to live this way. And then he saved us from our fallenness. He is both Lord of creation and Lord of the church. That vision of who our Savior is should destroy smaller visions. It should crush crush lesser visions of who the God who's redeemed us is. And it ought to drive our thinking about our job and about our neighbors and about our kids and about our own habits and behaviors and, and the way that we think about God and the way that we ask him for things and the way that we lay hold of opportunities that he gives us. It ought to change the way that we approach the world, a vision of who God is. Let's pray as we close. Father, in a room this size with with this many people in it, it is likely that there is someone here who does not know you. And so I pray that having heard who Jesus is, I pray that that, that each person in the room, Lord, I pray that they they would be moved by your spirit perhaps to, to trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross. Taking all of our sins upon himself that we might have life. And I pray if there's anyone here who is in that place, Lord, I pray they'd put their faith and trust in you. Thank you for taking their sins and that they would delight in the gift of righteousness given from you. And I pray that if they, if they make that decision that they would tell someone. Father, I also pray for those of us who are are challenged by physical, spiritual, mental uh, work, difficulties, any, any struggle. Lord, you are Lord of creation. Jesus, you know what it is that we're battling with. And you provide the solutions as Savior. You are the solution. You're Lord of creation and Lord of the church. And I pray that we would delight in that and that it would be a strength, an anchor, and a a rock, that it would be a foundation to us as we go through the difficulties of life. 
you are capable and qualified to be trusted. We thank you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together.